0: and I'm glad you clarified it's the other Adrian preaching today. I am Adrian uh, and I'm going to read the Bible this morning. There's only the one Bible reading uh, which is Job chapter 38 through to chapter 40 verse 5. It's an unusually long Bible reading. Uh, However, it's been chosen so that we get the full effect of what God says when he first and finally speaks to Job and after all. It's no burden to hear his word read. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, This far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives? an uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland as its home the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your uh, threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly, as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labour was in vain, For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet, when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It pours fiercely, rejoicing in its strength, and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side, along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. It cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. At the blast of the trumpet, it snorts, aha! It catches the scent of battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there it looks for food, its eyes detected from afar. Its young ones feast on blood and where the slain are, there it is. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Heavenly Father,
1: we do give you thanks for those words to us. Uh, we thank you so much that you do raise our eyes uh, to see who you are, and we pray now as we consider them for a bit longer, uh, that you would help us to see you and know you, praise in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, they are—it It is a, majest- a majestic chapter, two chapters, thank you so much for reading them, Adrian. Adrian, the A-team is on today, yes. Uh, but uh, please open up your Bibles, keep it open to chapter 38. There's also the outline on the back, uh, which you can take some notes, but uh um, one of the things I've noticed, uh, we have talked about suffering a lot, haven't we? Uh, in, in Job, uh, it's not super surprising. There's a lot of suffering in Job. Uh, but one of the things I've, I've noticed about suffering is how suffering can turn a person inwards. Uh, suffering can make a person think a lot about themselves. It's not all that surprising. Uh, if you stub your toe, trivial example, if you stub your toe, you instantly think about yourself, uh, the pain in your toe. Suffering, Like pain has a power to turn us inwards. Maybe, if you think back to chapter 3, it's because suffering is lonely and it's isolating. No one knows your suffering. Uh, Maybe it's because suffering is actually overwhelming. It takes over so much of your life that we are simply forced to think about ourselves and our circumstance. But only focusing on ourselves can make suffering worse. Uh, It can lead to endless conversations uh, in our own heads, a constant recalling of pain, an endless forever conversation of trying to work out how to fix something which maybe can't be fixed. In the end, this makes suffering harder. Uh, Rather than hopefulness, hopelessness sets in. And in some ways, this is what we've seen in the book of Job, uh, you probably don't need me to say it again, but Job has suffered intensely. Uh, he was known as the greatest man in the East for his wealth, possessions, and family. But lightning fell from the sky, a wind blew from the desert, and wicked people attacked. And so now he sits on a rubbish dump, an ash heap, no possessions, his family dead, except for his wife, and he has suffered. And as we've mentioned in this series, he has suffered undeservedly. In chapters 1 and 2, Job is confirmed as blameless and upright. He has not suffered for evil, he is suffering undeservedly. And so throughout this book, Job is wrestling with God. He questions God's goodness and his justice. He's not just going, why? Like, why am I suffering? He's saying, why am I suffering undeservedly? And this has been his, his focus. It's like he's kind of zoomed in on this one question. And so now God zooms back the camera And if Job has any inward focus, his eyes are now drawn elsewhere, to God himself, because the Lord now speaks. And this is what Job has desired. If you've been with us in this series, you will know that Job has wanted a day in God's courtroom, chapter 9. Chapter 19, he's wanted to see God face to face. He's wanted to defend himself before God. He's wanted to be vindicated. And that's a really good desire. It's a great yearning of the heart, to be righteous before the Lord. Uh, But not all Job's words have been good. If you kind of read the beginning of chapter 40, you'll see what God says of his words. Uh, In Job's innocent suffering, he has disputed, corrected, and accused. In 40 verse 8, he has condemned God's justice. So now the time has come for God to hear, to speak to Job. Now the time has come for Job to meet God. But Job doesn't get the answers he was hoping for. Instead, he gets 51 questions from God. Ah, thanks God. Um, But it's what God does. He lovingly draws Job's attention to who he is as God. He gets Job to look around the created world and see why he can be trusted, even when answers aren't given. And first he says to Job, look, look at this good, But chaotic world. Uh, At the moment I'm doing lots of running on bush trails. Uh, If you're a runner on bush trails you know one of the key things to do is keep your eyes forward. Keep your eyes forward. If you look to the left at a beautiful vista and you keep running it's likely you'll trip over and hurt yourself. Uh, I've done that before, broke a toe. Um, But humans I think we're we're kind of made to look forward, to look forward not just in the way that we walk and as we run but uh, even in life. Uh, We're constantly looking forward to what's coming up. But God says to Job first, look back. Not just to the beginning of your life, but to the beginning of the world. In in verse 4 there, it's God is the ultimate builder. He has laid a firm foundation, a cornerstone. He has measured dimensions. He has marked it off with a measuring line. He's created a world that is not wonky. He's created a stable world ordered world. Verse seven, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Sally Lloyd-Jones, a children's author, uh, she wrote this about the creation story. God loved them, humans, with all his heart and they were lovely because he loved them. Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the winds and the tree, the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness and nothing ever made them sad or lonely or sick or afraid. God made a really good world. And maybe this does help you to trust God more. Uh, You know, as you go for a walk in the forest, as you kind of dip your toes in the ocean, as you shred some snow on a mountain, as you see God's beauty, as you see his glory and goodness, maybe that helps you to trust him more. It certainly has helped me, Uh, but it's not that simple, is it? Uh, The world isn't all good. And that's what you see in verse 8 to 21. It's not all light and joyful song. In this good world where you could sing and rejoice, in this good world there is chaos, evil, darkness and death. And God holds them all in his hands. Uh, In verse, uh, there is chaos, there is chaos. Verse 8 to 11, God speaks to the seas and the waves. Uh, The sea and waves in the Bible often represent evil and disorder it's really not hard to see why, there's been a good run of swell coming through at the moment. And as you watch waves crash, you can see how disordered it is. As you watch them crash, you see the foam bubble, you see sand churn, you see rips pulling people out to the deep. You hear things, you hear loud crashes, and you feel spray on the face as waves explode. It is chaotic, it is out of control. It's not dissimilar to how you might feel in suffering. It's not dissimilar to how you might feel when you observe the the evening news. The world and suffering seems chaotic. But, verse 8, God asks, Who shut the sea behind the doors? Verse 10, Who fixed limits for it? Verse 11, Who said, This far you may come and no farther? Here is where your proud waves halt. The Lord controls the chaos. It's in his hands. Uh, Next, there is evil in God's world. Uh, The first half of chapter 38 is about inanimate creation, you know, light, sea, wind. But the wicked people are dropped in there in verse 13 to 15. The wicked, morally corrupt people bring chaos to God's world. They hurt, they devour, they kill, they destroy. Think about Job. Uh, The wicked people took his ox, donkeys and camels and killed many of his servants. Uh, we can look back on history we can look at present time today and we can see all the terrible things that evil people have done they appear so powerful and yet in verse 12 have you job have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it it's like the wicked are a sand on a beach towel and you pick up your towel and you give it a shake and the sand just flings away you see, God stands above the wicked as he orders light to enter the world. He shakes away the wicked like sand on a beach tower. In verse 15, the wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. If God is in an arm wrestle with the wicked, he wins every time like Sylvester Stallone over the top. <laughs> Any reference? Anyone? No. Okay, God holds the wicked in his hands. He is more powerful than the wicked. Uh, Finally, in this section, there is death and darkness in God's world. Uh, Job, very familiar with darkness, very familiar with darkness. In his lament, he cried out that darkness would claim the day of his birth. In the present, chapter 23, he lives in darkness. Darkness covers his face. And as he thinks of his death, his future, he speaks of going to the land of darkness, where even light is darkness. 10.22, Job knows darkness. He knows the darkness that lurks in this world. And yet God asks him, Have the gates of death been shown to you, Job? Have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Do you know where darkness resides? Do you know the path to their dwellings? The Lord, he's not surprised by death and darkness. This is his world. Darkness and death is known to him. God beckons Job to look at this world, to see the beginning, filled with joy, the angels sung. But he also caused Job to observe the chaos of the seas, the wicked in the lands, and the darkness beneath. All these things that seem so powerful and out of control, that seem so opposed to God's goodness, but yet are within God's hands. Next, God takes our eyes, or Job's eyes, to the skies. He says, look up. Look up at the skies. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're in a field, empty field. You have no raincoat, no umbrella, no shelter. There's no cave. There's no tree. There's nothing to hide. It's a clear and beautiful night. But then the weather changes. There's hail, lightning, thunderstorm, torrents of rain, the beginnings of a flood. You've got that image in your mind. How do you feel? Uh, What words uh, come to your mind? Cold? Yes, cold. Scared? Worried? Terrified? God caused Job to look up in verse 22 and 38. He causes Job to consider the weapons in the sky, the powerful forces of nature that God reserves for days of war, verse 23, things that wreak havoc. And I imagine for Job, this might have been pretty distressing, which might be why at the beginning of this speech, God says to embrace yourself. Brace yourself like a man or brace yourself like a warrior. Get ready for this because it's going to be hard. Because as Job thinks of lightning and fire, he might recall chapter 1, the fire of God, lightning, fell from the heavens and burned up his sheep and servants. And a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of his house. Job knows the powers in the sky. And now God asks him, verse 24, what is the way to the place where the lightning is? Or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth, earth. Verse 35, do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. The powerful skies are in God's control. Uh, things that seem untamable, uncontrollable, are under God's command. And yes, they bring destruction. Job knows it. Job laments it. But that's not all they do. God sends a thunderstorm. And he commands the rain, verse 25, to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout grass. Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? A big, big God who sends a lightning bolt holds in his hands a drop of rain. He gives birth to it and he sends it on his way to bring about life in a desert where no human benefits. Me, I'm pretty worried about my little garden. It's probably about 10 square meters big. Uh, it's for me and my family to enjoy, but God fathers the rain and sends it to a desert that I will never see to give growth to grass, to a desert that you and I might never walk in. Look up, Job. Look up. Uh, look up and see my wisdom, the powerful lightning bolt, the drop of rain in my it's in my hands life and destruction are in my hands look up job look up and trust me now 10 a.m look up the god who formed the world knows the number of hairs on your head look up and trust lastly lastly uh in this little bit uh god says look around look around at the wild. Uh, There are some truly classic songs, The Circle of Life, classic song, love it. Uh, As soon as I hear it, I think Lion King, I'm not sure if everyone does, Uh, you know, I think of Simba being held up on Pride Rock, and I decided that in preparation for this sermon I'd re-watch this scene, it is beautiful, Uh, elephants, Uh, it, it helped me a lot, people. Uh, Don't knock Disney too much. Uh, Elephants, meerkats, giraffe, antelopes, they all march together in harmony. It's great. The African land, the African animals, they, they, they kind of shine in splendor. As you watch this clip, everything seems so good. You can see why the angels rejoiced, happy, so much life. But in the reality, for the circle of life to continue, some animals have to die. Some animals are prey of others. Death for life you don't see that in Lion King. I mean, you, as, as the circle of life plays, it would make more for a horror film rather than a kid's movie. And that's kind of what you get in chapter 39. We move from the winds and the waves and the lightning to, to creatures, wild animals that roam the globe. Uh, from 39 of chapter 38, do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions? When they crouch in their dens or lie and wait in a thicket, who provides food for the raven? When it's young, cry out to God and wanders about for lack of food. The lion kills to feed her cubs. The remains of the feed the raven. And the raven feeds her young who lack food. Now, if you're watching a David Attenborough commentating on the scene, he might say, wow, observe the skills of this lion. Observe the patient raven who waits to feed her young. Yet God does not give credit to the animal, rather he is the one who hunts, and he is the one who provides. This is God's world. Life and death are in his hands. He holds things that are opposed to each other together, life and death, death for life. Uh, later in this chapter, he does it again. He compares the ostrich and the warhorse, two things that are opposed to each other, just don't go together and he designed them both. The ostrich, you know, it has wings that flap joyfully and yet these wings, they don't take her off the ground like the other birds, it's a foolish animal. Especially when it comes to a young, she buries them in the sand only for herself or other animals to trample them. When she gives birth to a young, she, she hardly cares for them. Verse 17, God did not endow her with wisdom. And yet when she spreads her feathers, she doesn't fly. But she runs, she runs, she laughs at the horse and rider, she flies past them. Christopher Ashe puts it like this, she is more powerful than the nuclear weapons of her age. We'll see why if we read about the war horse next. She is Ferrari, the horses are VW Beetles. She is a creature, foolish but fast. Job, can you design this, Job? Job, can you think of it? That foolish but fast creature is then compared with the warhorse. I mean, if you can imagine a battle, what do you think the ostrich would be doing? Fleeing from the battle on their long legs as fast as they can carry them. But this wild animal laughs at fear, afraid of nothing, loves the scent of battle and charges in. It pours the ground fiercely and rejoices in it. It's a war machine and it cannot wait to fight and win. It is wild, it is untamed, and yet it is God who gave it strength. God who clothes its necks with a mane. God who makes it leap like a locust into battle. The foolish bird, the powerful warhorse, both are gods. And he holds them both in his hands. Things, things that don't appear to go together. God holds them both together. See, throughout these chapters, God questions Job relentlessly. God could have just made statements. I made this world. I wisely rule this world. I hold things together that you don't. But instead, God engages Job. He wants, he wants Job to encounter him, not passively, not by simply listening. He wants Job to answer. He, he wants Job to meet him and to know him. And he wants the same thing for you. Now he might ask the same questions to us, Look around the world. Do you control the chaos? Do you control the seas, the darkness, the weapons in the sky and death? He might say to you, look up at the skies. Uh, Do you hold life and destruction in your hands? Do you cause the lightning bolt to strike? But also give birth to the rain that gives life. Look around at the wild animals. Do you give life and take it away? Do you take life so that others might live? Do you design these contrasting creatures, the foolish bird and the powerful warhorse? Look up. Look up at who I am. Job, does your wisdom compare to mine? Are your accusations correct? Can you run the world better than me? Can you plan out your life better than me? Yet Job, he has been asking the question why over and over again, but God shifts the question. It's not why, it's who. Christopher Ash writes, God directs our attention away from our agonized questions and towards himself. He does not take us by hand and lead us to an answer. Rather, he beckons us to bow before the Lord himself. He knows the answers but chooses not to tell us. After this first speech from God, Job is humble. He admits he is unworthy. He realizes he is small compared to God. He acknowledges that his words were out of place. There are no more accusations from Job in this book. There are no more questions from Job in this book. Job has seen God's amazing wisdom as he rules and sustains this world. Job has seen God hold things together that seem so opposed, life and death, strength and weakness, a foolish bird and a powerful warhorse. Maybe Job has started to see how God can hold together undeserved suffering. Two things that appear so opposed. Two things that for this whole book make no sense to Job and his friends. Maybe Job is starting to see that answers aren't as important as knowing our infinitely wise God. We see Job's trust grow, and that is how the righteous suffer. And this is something we can learn too. But we don't just look to the world, we also look to Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, Colossians 2.3, is hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus Christ, God holds things together that really are opposed to each other. Jesus Christ came as a king, but was born in a manger. He's an eternal son of God, to whom the whole world should bow, and yet, he bows before his disciples, and washes their feet. He's a king who serves. Human wisdom could not, would not, normally put those things together. It just doesn't make sense to us. And there's more things like this in Jesus' life. He was born to die. He was light, covered in darkness. He was innocent, yet condemned as guilty, suffering, undeservedly, dying to give life. From a human point of view, Jesus makes no sense. It's just foolishness. It's a terribly tragic story. Innocent suffering makes no sense. And yet in Jesus Christ, these things are held together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Narrow burn 10am, there will be a lot of things that will make no sense to us. There will be a lot of things that you'll have no answers to. There's a lot of suffering that will happen to you, and you won't be able to work out the reason why, because there'll be things that you'll hold together, and you just can't put them together. They'll seem so opposed, and you can't hold them in your hands or in your mind but take comfort in this. God's wisdom is bigger than ours. He holds things together which make no sense to us. In Jesus Christ, we see it supremely. His undeserved death for our eternal life. Suffering, it might cause us to look inwards, but God has spoken to us this morning and he's called us to look out, to look at the world, to look at the skies, to look around the world at the wild animals and to look to Jesus, to look to Jesus and to trust him. Even when you can't make sense of it, look to Jesus and trust. I'm gonna pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for a majestic chapter, which does cause us to look and see you, uh, your amazing wisdom in how you rule this world. Uh, And how you hold things together which make no sense to us. And Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, uh, that in his suffering uh, we are given life. And so as we uh, go through life and as we struggle with not finding answers, uh, might we find you and know you, uh, our good God, who rules this world and has given us his son. Amen.